The text for the sermon this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field, but for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Last week we ended with a question that went something like this. Within the equality of personhood and the equality of dignity that man and woman have by virtue of their being created in God's image, might there not be special responsibilities that belong to man because he is man and woman because she is woman? Does equality of personhood and mutuality of respect demand sameness of responsibilities or even equal access to the same responsibilities? Or did God intend from the beginning that our equality be expressed in diverse and different roles and responsibilities as man and woman? That's the question I want to take up today and uh, stay with for several weeks as we try to get at what the Bible teaches concerning this matter of diversity and um, complementarity of relationships between men and women before sin came in and ruined things. So today, I want to look behind sin and ask, did God... In creation, before sin ruined the world, established things such that there were distinguishable responsibilities for man because he was man and for woman because she was woman. Now, that question, trying to get back behind the fall, is uh, a good question for a couple of reasons. First, Genesis chapter 2, I think, begs for this question to be asked. Let me explain why. When you read Genesis 1, what you see is that Moses tells us how God sovereignly created the world out of nothing. He ordered it perfectly. If you analyze the chapter, it breaks down into pairs so that everything is fitting together beautifully and leading towards the climax of creation, which is... 
man and woman created in God's image, that all is perfectly suited for habitation by man and woman to rule over, and then he calls it very good. And so chapter 1 says something immensely important about creation, about God, and about man as male and female in God's image. And, and he could have gone on to tell the story about how sin entered the world at that point. But instead, Genesis 2 comes in as a kind of zoom lens on the seventh day. Zeroes in on how God went about creating man and woman. And when you get to the end of chapter 2, you realize that one of the great purposes of writing chapter 2 was to say something about the relationship between man and woman. That's why you get this zoom lens approach to the seventh day, whereas according to chapter 1, you can't tell how God created man and woman. He just did it. They're both in his image. But when you back off and uh, let this zoom lens come in and focus on the how of that seventh day, you see that there's some other things going on here. So chapter 2 just begs to be queried. Well, what do you have to teach me now besides what you taught me in chapter 1 about the relationship of Adam and Eve and what you will for them? The second reason why I think this is a good question to get back behind sin and query God's intention about manhood and womanhood before sin is that in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul Whenever they go back to the Old Testament to choose a text to give guidance for how a man and woman should relate, they never go back to chapter 3 and make anything of that fallen condition normative. They always leap over chapter 3 into chapter 2 to pick up the primal, pristine intention of God. For man and woman. Jesus does it in relation to divorce and remarriage. And Paul does it in relationship to marriage in Ephesians 5. And in relationship to women and men relating in the church in 1 Timothy 2. So, for those two reasons, I think the question we're asking is a really good one. Namely, what's God's purpose for man and woman before sin comes in to mess things up? Now, I had started this with six observations, and when I got to number four, I had to cut it off. I might include two more in the star this week. We'll see. But I have four observations that I have time to give this morning about um, what God did in creating man and woman that points towards their distinct responsibilities. And they are cumulative in their effect, and so... Watch with me as we move through them. Number one, in chapter two of Genesis, the most obvious thing is that God created man first and then after some intervening events created woman second. Let's look at this. Chapter seven, I mean verse seven in chapter two says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And then drop down to verse 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her 
to the man. And then just to jump ahead a few weeks, we could take 1 Timothy 2.13 where Paul just simply says, in view of this fact, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And he makes that a foundation of one of his arguments. Now, let me ask this question. Why did God do it this way? Why did not he create man and woman simultaneously from the same lump of clay? I mean, that would have been a crystal clear statement of equality if he had done it that way. And the answer is, he already made that crystal clear statement of equality. In Genesis 1, verse 27... He created man, male and female, in his image. You can't say anything more exalted. You can't say anything more dignified about male and female than that they are both in the very image of God, like no other being on the face of the earth. So he had settled that issue of personal equality and equality of dignity. And now he has something else to say. He doesn't want to just say that. He's got other things to say about the way men and women relate to each other. And I believe what he is saying in creating man first, in making him the initial member of the pair, is to say something about his responsibility to initiate. This is not an issue of superior value. That whole issue was settled in chapter 1, verse 27. The value issue, the personhood issue, the dignity issue is settled. It is finished. It is not open for discussion when you get to chapter 2. The issue here is of a sinless man, childlike in his dependence upon God, being given a special role of responsibility for leadership. He is the initial half of the pair in order to say something about his initiating responsibilities. He is led into being first in order to say something about his leadership responsibilities. Now... The most common objection that is raised to this, you read it in every book and article that you pick up, is this. Well, the order of creation is meaningless. It has no content. It has no meaning because when you read chapter 1, the animals were created first before the man. And uh, if... Leadership responsibility is implied in being created first, then the animals are clearly the leader of the man. And so there's no meaning in this. That's the, you just see that argument everywhere today. Now, there are two answers to that, that kind of thinking. The first is this. Hebrew people, when they, in their family structures gave a special responsibility of leadership to the firstborn son who came into the family just because he was firstborn, that 
pattern and habit of giving that special role to the firstborn son was not the least nullified if the father happened to own cattle before he had a son. You see, Jews, and Moses knows this as he writes this, would not have begun to think of putting man and animals in the same category as candidates for leadership. And we shouldn't either. To, to bring the cattle that, a, that a, a father owns alongside his sons and say, well, the cattle should now be the, have the right of the firstborn. And Moses would just drop his mouth open and shake his head at that kind of thinking. That's my first response to that. We should not let this Hebraic idea of the firstborn be nullified by the fact that animals were there first. The second one is more important, perhaps, namely the Apostle Paul, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit in the way he handles Scripture, based his arguments on the firstness of man in creation in 1 Timothy 2.13. We do well not to say there is no meaning in something that an inspired spokesman gave great meaning to. We'll get to that in a few weeks and talk about Paul's use of it. So I think the first observation stands on the authority of the apostle, and I think it stands in the way a Jew would have normally read these first Hebrew chapters of the Bible. Man was created first, then the woman, and the implication has something to say about man's primary responsibility in the relationship. But that's made more clear as you move on to other observations. I said these were cumulative, so if you don't think so, see whether or not the subsequent observations lend more strength to that first one. The second observation is this. One of the responsibilities that came with being there first was to bear the primary responsibility of receiving, teaching, and being accountable for the moral pattern of the garden. Let's say that again. One of the responsibilities that fell upon the man, because he was there first, was that he now apparently bears primary responsibility to receive, to share, and to be accountable for the moral pattern of the garden life. Look at verse 16. God comes to man before woman is on the scene, and he says, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And then after the woman is created, there's no more record, of that being shared again by God, but the woman and man are both held accountable for that pattern of life. And I think Moses, as he writes, expects us to conclude that Adam is entrusted with this moral pattern of the garden to share it with his wife and then to be held accountable, especially, especially for its implementation. 
Now, question, are we on track here? Are we thinking God's thoughts after him at this point? Or are we reading too much into seeing man created first, then man being entrusted with the moral pattern of life in the garden to be handed over to his wife and then be held especially accountable for it? Or are we off track? Are are we reading in or, or, or reading out? The third observation to me is one of the strongest indications that we're not reading in, but rather we're on track. The third observation is this. When the pattern had been broken, when man and woman sinned and ate of the forbidden tree, God, in chapter 3, comes to the man first to call him to account even though the woman sinned first, even though the woman took the fruit first, when God comes down to search out the disobedient pair, he comes straight to the man. Verse 9, let's look at this. Chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? In other words, Adam, where are you? In verse 11, he's still interrogating Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, why did God go to Adam? First, why did he call Adam to account first? And I think, just in line with what we've seen so far... It's because Adam had a primary responsibility to receive and share the moral pattern, and therefore he bears the weight of accountability first for whether that pattern is implemented. And that's the way it's going to be, I believe, with every single pair in this church. If the family isn't running the way it ought to run, God will knock on the husband's door first. Now, let's not make a mistake here, however. God holds the woman accountable for her deeds. She is an independent, free, moral agent created in the image of God and must give an account for her own disobedience. Whether man does what he should or shouldn't has no bearing on the woman's responsibility before God to do what is right. The issue is not that, not removing responsibility to be obedient from woman, but giving a primary responsibility in man in relationship to woman to be the one who is held accountable and who is most responsible for making things be what they ought to be. Let me step back here and try to get a friend on my side. How many of you have ever heard the... uh, or listen to the radio program by James Dobson, Focus on the Family. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that radio show. Okay. It's, it's just, it's everywhere, you know. It's like Chicken Man. It's, it's, that's old. You, nobody knows what Chicken Man is. It's, it's all over the place. He said on that film the other night on Wednesday, he, he is on thousands of stations. My respect for James Dobson increases by the year. I think he ought to get the award of, 
uh, courageous man of the year. He, he puts his foot into so many dangerous things. Let me give you a quote from Dobson because I think I don't want to say anything different than what he says. And he, he knows social sciences. He knows psychology. He knows the inner workings of male and female a hundred times better than I do probably. He says, a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man to blame. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. In my view, says Dobson, now, this is amazing. This is amazing. America's greatest need. I heard that somebody asked why I was preaching this series. America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. He's right, I believe. And the reason I think he's right is because I think that's what these texts are teaching in Genesis 2 and 3. God brought man into the scene first as a leader. He entrusted him with the moral pattern of the garden first. He called him to account first. And therefore, even though man and woman are of equal worth and equal value and equal dignity before God as persons, nevertheless, in relationship to each other, man has a greater responsibility for the relationship than the woman does. That's the way God meant it to be before the fall. That doesn't have anything to do with sin. Sin wrecked it. Sin ruined it, as we've seen for two weeks. But what we see here is a sinless man, full of love, tender, loving, strong, and a leader. And we see a sinless woman, full of love, joyful, responsive support for man's leadership in the ideal. No belittling from the man, no groveling from the woman. Two intelligent, humble, God-entranced, there's the key, God-entranced beings in the image of God in beautiful harmony, working out their unique and distinct responsibilities in the dance of life. Now, Satan knows this is a beautiful arrangement. Satan knows this is a beautiful arrangement. He knows God's pattern is for the good of man and woman. And Satan hates God. And Satan hates you and your life. He hates your happiness. He hates your marriage. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And so what does he do? This is the fourth and final observation now. And it's this. Satan... This is the very first thing that he does in the world. Satan assaults 
the pattern of God by attacking the woman instead of the man. Now mark this. Why does he do that? Is it because she's easier prey? Is it because the woman is more gullible than the man? Or could it be that Satan drew her into the battle first, made her the spokesman, treated her as the moral guardian of the garden, precisely because that's not the way it was supposed to be. That's what I think happened. He looked at this arrangement of man as the moral guardian of the garden, with primary responsibility for the relationship. And he said, hmm. In other words, Satan spurns the order that God established and simply ignores the man. There's good evidence in this text, I don't have time to go into it, that Adam was there while he was talking to Eve. He engages the woman as the spokesman. The moral guardian, the leader in the pair, and thus puts man exactly where he wants him, exactly where he has got him in most families today, namely, as a silent, withdrawn, weak, fearful, passive wimp. And a masculine wimp is a dangerous man. Because in one moment, he's just walking behind his wife. And the next moment, he's so mad at her that he'll blame everything on her. A masculine wimp is a dangerous man. And that's where Satan has the world. Either Blasting out at his wife in anger or sitting in front of the television with his feet up doing nothing to care for the kids. No prayer, no Bible reading, no leadership in worship, no moral vision for the family. Beat her up or leave her alone. Satan stands back and says, genius, I'm a genius. They'll never figure out what the real problem is. They'll watch man in his abusiveness and they'll tell him, be passive toward the women. And they'll watch the woman being abused and they'll say, be assertive toward the man. And they'll never get to the root of the problem. Genius from the word go. More subtle than every creature in the field. But God is not confused about what the problem is. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. He goes to man now and he calls him to account and he sentences him on these two grounds. He says to the man, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And, secondly, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You were listening when you should have been leading, Adam. 
You were just standing there. Just doing nothing for the moral guardianship of the life of this family and this garden. Cursed is the ground because of your failures. God does not want us to be confused. He's not confused about what the problem is. He doesn't want us to be confused. He created man first. He gave him the moral pattern of the family and the garden first. He held him accountable for the failure first. And then he punishes him for falling right into line with God's arch enemy when Satan effected by luring a role reversal at the very outset. And so, what should we do? Well, I really don't have anything to say to the women this morning. I don't really believe women are the problem in the failure of our relationships. I really don't. Men are the problem in this world, primarily. (laughs) To be primary in responsibility is not a very happy thing sometimes because you do get spoken to first and primarily for the problems that are in the world, in relationships. And so I want to close by addressing men. This text, first of all, calls us to humble ourselves and repent. Every one of us, we have all failed. I'm talking every one of us have failed in being what we ought to be. I'm talking single guys too. This text has a bearing on how you treat single women, how you treat married women. We've all failed in being the kind of gracious, humble, loving leaders we ought to be in relationship to women. And we should repent. This is not a call to exalt yourself over anybody. I haven't said one word, nor will I ever say in these messages a word about your rights. I'm speaking one language in these messages, responsibility. We do have a burden to bear and a responsibility to carry. I'm not calling any man to domineer. I'm not calling any man to belittle or to put a woman in her place as though her place was anything other than a fellow heir of God destined for a glory that will blind every man on this earth someday. I'm calling the men to stoop down and let God put on your back a great responsibility of servant leadership. It's a call that we should take risks, fellas. It's risky business. She might laugh at my effort to lead in devotions. She might laugh at my effort to make a special evening and plan it and take her somewhere. She might laugh at If I try to turn this family around and become the spiritual leader, it's risky business to be a leader in a church or a nation or a family or at work. It's a call to pray like we've never prayed before for help. It's a call to be in the Word, to find out what God expects of us in the right proportion and right balance because we're so sinful that we're so prone to get out of balance one way in domineering or one way in passivity. We must be in the Word every day pleading for God to open His will to us. 
It's a call to plan things more than we do, to be more intentional, not to be drifters who just go with the mood of the moment, never have anything planned for the family. No prayer plan, no devotion plan, no times out planned. What, what do you got planned for tomorrow? I blew it entirely. Except that we do have a staff meeting from 7 to 10 tomorrow morning. And then maybe we'll manage something special. I'm talking mainly to myself here. I hope you realize that. I feel very inadequate as a leader in my family. Does that surprise you? I sometimes look around and I see things other families are doing and I say, that's a great idea. I think of that. It's a call to be disciplined and ordered. Some guys have an awful time with that. To be orderly and disciplined. How can you lead if you're so disordered in your life? We're talking significant changes here for some of us. It's a call to be tender-hearted and sensitive. You're not talking drill sergeant when you talk leadership in, in the home and in relationship to women. You're talking sensitivity, tender-heartedness, open-mindedness. It's a call to take the initiative to make sure there's time and place to talk about what needs to talk to be talked about. And here I'm talking about single guys. This has relevance for dating. Yes, it's not just old-fashioned that a guy ought to call a girl. A guy ought to think through the evening. A guy ought to say, things are funny between me and her. I got to get us together and talk. Now, I'm not saying a woman can't get you together to talk. I'm saying primarily the guy ought to feel the responsibility to get it going. Same thing with a sister. Even the same thing, guy, with your woman supervisor. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in weeks to come. There is a way... For a man who happens to be in an organization with a woman supervisor to take initiatives of leadership appropriate to the male-female relationship. There are. And finally, this is a call to be ready, men, to lay down our lives in discharging the responsibility of caring leadership toward women, toward women. Why do the women and children get off the boat first? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I have in my mind just not perfectly, but enough to enthrall me with the vision of what I see here as beautiful. I want it so much for our families and for the relationships in this church. I believe that Satan is a very subtle and deceiving being who from the beginning has been trying to ruin the pattern of life between men and women. And I just beg that you would help us to keep studying, keep praying, Keep humbling ourselves before your word. Keep resolving to be, as man and woman, what you have called us to be. 
May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. And all the people said, Amen.